Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Scary Stories to Listen to in the Dark. I'm your host, Zulma, and today we'll be covering the serial killer, Edmund Kemper, also known as the co-ed killer. And this takes place in the 70s, so if you're not, he's, I think he's still alive. But I will tell you what he did if you have not heard of him. And then I just want to do a, the listener's discretion is advice. This story does contain gruesome details and information. All right, so let's get started, guys. All right, so a little bit of background on Edmund. He was born on December 18th, 1948 in Burbank, California, weighing 13 pounds as a newborn and was a head taller than his peers by the age of four. So you can just imagine how big this child was and even baby. So just a little preview of how he's big he's going to be when he's older. So his parents were Edmund Jr. and Carnell Kemper. He had one older and one younger sister. Early on, he exhibited antisocial behavior such as cruelty to animals. He once buried a cat live, dug it up again, and decapitated. He said he enjoyed successfully lying to his family about what happened to the cat. He had also a dark fantasy life. He said some of his favorite games to play as a child were a gas chamber and electric chair, in which he asked his younger sister to tie him up and flip an imaginary switch. Then he would tumble over and writhe on the floor, which is not a normal game to play as a child. I mean electric chair and gas chamber like I want to know what he was reading or seeing for him to like think of these games so-called games you know it's not pretty pretty bad so in 1957 his parents divorced and he had to live with his mother in Helena Montana and this was very hard on him because his mother his mother was emotionally abusive and would lock him up in the basement at night because she was afraid he would harm his sisters Um, and I believe during this time he might have been I want to say like nine years old. Yeah. And for his mom already to fear some kind of, you know, fear against his, her own son. But she was also not the nicest woman. She was very emotionally abusive and would call him dumb and call me names. Um, and also it hurt because he was very close to his father. So being away from him probably was more traumatic as well. And uh, by the age of 14, he ran away and went to his father in California, where he found out that his father remarried and had a new son. So this hurt his feelings all. He felt like he had been replaced. So then his dad sent sent him to his grandparents in North Fork, California. At the age of 15, he shot his grandmother after an argument with a rifle that his grandpa had gifted him for hunting. And so he had the same relationship with his grandma, the same way he had his mom. She was kind of very mean to him, and he did not like her. So when his father, uh, grandfather came home from grocery shopping, Kemper came out and shot him on the driveway. He didn't know what to do after, so he called his mom and told, and she told him, call the police. So he sat outside and waited for the police to show up, and they take him into custody. He said he wanted to know what it would feel like to kill his grandma and killed his grandfather so he wouldn't find out what that his wife was dead, which is kind of odd. Um, so court psychiatri- psychiatrists, I always struggle with that word, court psychiatrists, little psychiatrist diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic and sent him to Atascadero State Hospital, which is a maximum security facility that houses mentally ill convicts. So the psychiatrist, sorry guys, psychiatrist, I cannot say this, and social workers disagreed with Court's diagnosis. They observed him to be intelligent and introspective with an IQ of 136 and he scored 145 on a second IQ test. So he was very intelligent. 
Um, he endeared himself to psychiatrists and was a model prisoner. So the last report from his probation psychi psychiatrist read, if I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society, and since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential. I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. So he was released on his 21st birthday on December 19, 1969, against the wishes of several psychologists and placed in his mother's care in Santa Cruz, California. Which I think is insane that they let him go. I mean, I don't know what other patients they had there for, but I think he was just so intelligent that he was able to fool everyone like, oh, I'm healed, I'm, perf I'm good to go, you know, and they believed him. So let me continue on with the next part of his story. So once he got out of the, uh, the hospital, he took a number of menial jobs before eventually getting a job at the state of California's Department of Transportation. He attended community college with, in accordance with his parole requirements, and he really wanted to become a police, police officer and even maintain relationships with the Santa Cruz police officer. He would uh, regular this bar called the jury room where there was a lot of police officers, and I think that's where he made friends. He got rejected to the police academy, though, because of his size of six feet and nine inches, which was above regulation heights. And he earned him uh, that earned him the nickname Big Ed, which I think is funny because he was rejected from the police academy, not because of his background, <laughs> but because of his six foot nine inches. But you know what happened? They probably just saw him. And they're like, you know, uh, before they could even get him to like background check. And so they probably just saw him for his size. So maybe that would explain it. Um, during this time, his relationship with his mother remained toxic, and um, I just got lost. And then once he saved up enough money, he moved out with a friend in Alameda. Kemper was shot by or hit by a car while riding a motorcycle he had recently purchased, and he received $15,000, which is equivalent to $90,000 today with inflation, um, that he went from the settlement and bought himself a 1969 Ford Galaxy. He started noticing a lot of women hitchhiking and began to gather supplies such as a knife, plastic bag, and handcuffs. He picked up around 150 hitchhikers before he began acting on his urges. So he was picking up these women as practice. So he never harmed any of those 150, but that is just how smart he is. He just practiced, I guess, before even doing an attack. Marianne Syke and Anita Lucessa were hitchhiking from Fresno State to Berkeley, but they never made it. Ed drove them to an isolated spot and suffocated Mary Ann while Anita was in the trunk. They fought back and he took bodies back to the apartment and had sexual intercourse with, cor with the corpses and dismembered them and put them into bags and scattered them everywhere. Two months later, Mary Ann's head was found in a mountain and no other body parts were found. And then another, uh, I guess a little bit after that, Aiko Kiko was 15, is a 15-year-old dancer on her way from dance class and she had checked after missing the bus he drove her to an isolated location and he actually locks himself out of the car but he convinces her to open the door and i just that's another i think example of how intelligent he was he probably was like oh i'll take you back or maybe promised her something but she gets back in or he gets back in and he kills her he suffocates her until she's unconscious rapes and strangles her so with the dead body in the trunk, he goes to a bar after for a couple of drinks. He takes the body back to his apartment 
and dismembers her and has uh, intercourse with the with the corpse. So at this point, this is his MO now, which is, you know, kind of what his his go-to is. And during this time, there is another serial killer called Herbert Mulan. Um, he was uh, in the area as well as for Santa Cruz. So Herbert actually gets caught and the police tie it all to him. Even if they don't line up, I think their police are just so de- desperate this time to find out who's doing all these killings that they kind of try to tie it all to him, even though there's not enough evidence. Which kind of like saves Ed. And then so he moves back in with his mother in 1972 and him and his mom argue all day. So he starts doing this thing where every time his mom and him argue, he goes and kills somebody. Like he kind of like takes this anger out by killing people for, you know, to like in anger towards her. So one day he picks up Cindy Shaw from Cabrillo College and takes her to a wooded area and fatally shoots her. He places the body in the trunk, takes her back to his mom's and places her in a closet. When his mom goes back to work, he does his M.O. and discards her body into the ocean. Her body is then discovered 24 hours later. A month later, after an argument with his mother once again, he picks up two Santa Cruz College students, Rosalind Thorpe and Elisa Liu. The students were warned not to hitchhike, but Ed was using his mother's car, which had UCSC stickers, since she worked there, so they trusted him. And he does his M.O. with them, too, unfortunately. On April 20th, 1973, he decides to kill his mother. He's had it with her. He beats her with a hammer, decapitates her, and has rumation with her with uh, with her severed head. Then he uses it as a dartboard. He puts her tongue and larynx in the garbage disposal, but it couldn't break it down, so it spits it back out. Then he decides to call up Sally Hallett, which is his mother's best friend, to a surprise dinner and strangles her. He did it so police would think that someone broke into the house and tried to cover up for himself. So he drives away for three days, but he hears no news of himself on the radio or anywhere. So he calls Santa Cruz and confesses. He's upset that no one knows it's him. So he tries to plead insanity, but charged guilty in all eight counts of murder. And the um, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs inspired by it, as well as Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. And he, you know, he just... I think he's still alive and he's sentenced to life, but it's kind of crazy how after all these killings, he um, he let a lot of people and, you know, police and psychologists interview him because he even wanted was so curious as to how he worked. So a lot of these stories he told it himself. He told the police everything, which is how we were able to get all these details. Um, but yeah, he was just a really smart guy and it's just kind of sad that it went to waste on this kind of cruelty. And I feel like his emotionally abusive mom had to do with it, but it still doesn't explain all the other things. Like, I I feel like there's kids that have grown up with way worse and they they don't become serial killers. And it's just interesting to me that he's so willing to, like, give out information, which is, I mean, I feel like it's been helping, hopefully, maybe, like, FBI profile certain serial killers and whatnot. But, yes, that is the story of the co-ed killer. And he's called the co-ed killer because he killed a lot of college students in uh, Santa Cruz, which is in California. And I feel like California tends to have a lot of murders. I don't know what it is about this state. And I live here, so it's, you know, this is in the 70s, so there's a lot. (laughs) You never know which ones are hiding in the dark right now. So let's end on a positive note. What are you guys thankful for this week or even today? Today, I am thankful for why am I struggling to find this? I should be so thankful for many things. I'm thankful for to be alive. And I'm thankful that I have a car that is reliable. I, my first car, couple cars were 
um, hand-me-downs or I, I mean, I paid for them myself, but they're just like very old cars. And once I was able to get my own car that off the lot with under my owning with no co-signer, by the way, <laughs> which feels really good. I was proud of that. Um, and I have to worry about the check engine light coming on. So <laughs> I'm very thankful for that and very thankful I don't have to hit check. Thank you guys for listening. And if you are listening to this in the dark, make sure to check for monsters under your bed. Goodbye.